We all appear to have a single consciousness. Why not two or three consciousnesses in a single person? What's going on here? Well, that's the topic today on Mind Matters News. Welcome to Mind Matters News, where artificial and natural intelligence meet head on. Here's your host, Robert J. Marks. We hear of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, dual personalities, but most of us only have one consciousness. What's the deal here? Why do we display a so-called unity of consciousness? Returning to talk about this is Dr. Angus Manoj. He's a professor and chair of philosophy at Concordia University. Uh, Angus, welcome. Welcome back. Thanks for having me again. You're, you're very, very welcome. We're really honored to have you. Uh, Angus, if you haven't read any of his stuff, is wickedly smart, and we're just honored to talk to him. Let me start out the questioning. What is this so-called unity of consciousness? It's an Aryan philosophy. Is that right? Yeah, going back a very long way, uh, it's mentioned by Plato and Aristotle and later on by uh, Kant, um, some of the great uh, minds. It's the issue that there seems to be a remarkably singular conscious field. So we can have many experiences concurrently. So when you see a sunset, you hear the, uh, the whooping of cranes go by, uh, you smell the aroma of coffee, um, and you feel the wind going through your hair, and yet all of those are unified in one conscious field. So it's not as if there is um, one consciousness w witnessing the sunset, another consciousness hearing the cranes, another one feeling the, the wind, another one smelling the coffee. No, they are all uh, experiences metaphorically located within one field of consciousness. And this problem has become even more remarkable as we know more about the brain, because we now know that the brain is a highly distributed, it's a parallel distributed system. And we know that even with just one object, I mentioned before the example of that blue ball that's bouncing, well, the part of the brain that's concerned with color and the part of the brain which is concerned with shape and the part that's concerned with motion are all different, and yet we integrate that, and we're conscious of one object. So there's there's a there's a unity both in the sense that many experiences belong to one consciousness, but also that we experience objects and activities as integrated wholes uh, within that uh, experience. That is fascinating. I've learned about. What was it? It's called a split brain operation, where people that are epileptic sometimes go in for operations. The neurosurgeon goes in and separates the right and left hemispheres. Because I guess what happens, as I understand it, is that the signal for the epileptic fit starts on one side and is communicated to the other side. But by splitting the brain, you uh, eliminate that path from one side to the other and therefore get rid of the epileptic fits. The part I found fascinating in these split brain experiments, according to talks with Michael Ignor, is that the people don't change their personalities very much. And it seems that they don't change their consciousness. Uh, that, that to me is astonishing. Uh, that really seems to 
contribute to this idea of unity of consciousness in a very strong way. It, it does, because early on when those experiments were first done or treatments for patients, um, it was thought that, oh, look, we can split consciousness and now there will be two consciousnesses, uh, one for each hemisphere. But uh, Tim Bain, who is uh, an expert on the unity of consciousness, says, no, um, really the best explanation of what is going on is that there is one consciousness that can split its uh, attention and it's doing two different kinds of processing um, depending on the, uh, the the hemisphere involved. And so it might be that one you know, hemisphere doesn't have everything it needs for certain kinds of cognitive tasks, but it's really one consciousness that's splitting its attention uh, two different ways. It's not two uh, different consciousnesses, according to, to him. We hear about, at least in the movies, and this is about all I understand about it, of split personalities, people who turn into a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Sally Field uh, starred in a, I forget what the name of the movie is, but it was, it was about a girl that had numerous split personalities. And would we say here that this is a uh, an exchange of consciousness? Is this just something in psychology as opposed to philosophy? Or what's going on here? Well, it seems to me the best explanation of what's going on is that there is a change in the access to certain information. There's really one subject, but just as in the split brain cases, it can switch its attention. So in these different modes, um, what, what you find is that one personality finds memories and experiences of another personality inaccessible, much like the uh, Jekyll and Hyde account that you gave. But there isn't really a reason to think that there are multiple subjectivities or conscious subjects. It's just that this one subject can enter different modes and the kind of information and experiences they have in one mode then is not necessarily accessible in uh, another mode. That's interesting. So this this singleness of consciousness is always applicable, but it's like a little switch is thrown to switch you from a Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde, and you don't relate to the other one while you're doing the uh, the switch. I, I remember the name of the Sally Field movie. It was Sybil, S-Y-B-I-L. Mm. It was yep. in 1976, and she goes through, because of abuse as a child, all of these split personality uh, traits. So that is really interesting stuff. What is the idea of too many thinkers? That's also a field in philosophy, too many thinkers. Uh, what, what's going on here? It's a, it, The too many thinkers problem is one that arises for what are called the complex views of personal identity. Uh, the simple view of personal identity is that your soul or your mind is always you. Um, that's, that's a kind of a dualist view. The complex view is, no, it's based on some kind of continuity, either uh, continuity of brain states, physical continuity, or continuity of memories, mental states. And in the scenarios that are described, they create problems uh, for this view. Um, here's a few examples. Um, suppose that there is a, an ontological three-dimensional copier, right? It can duplicate people physically. So then you and your doppelganger, which is just like you in every way physically, 
you kind of share a common origin. This this copy was made from you, and there's continuity. Since the continuity is there, it would seem that there's now two of you. The problem is there can't be two of you because two things cannot be one thing. There's another problem raised by uh, Richard Swinburne. He imagines that he's going to have uh, an operation where each of his cerebral hemispheres is placed in another person. So you've got to think that there are two other people. They have, one of them has a missing left hemisphere. The other one has a missing right hemisphere. Your left hemisphere goes into the first one, your right into the other one. Well, they are continuous with the original you, and so it would seem that if you based identity on continuity, they both have to be you. But they can't both be you because two things cannot be one thing. The options really are either that you don't survive at all or you survive as one of them rather than the other one, but you can't survive as both. And uh, this has been developed even further when we consider um, what's necessary for consciousness according to materialism. It must be that it is having the right kind of um, neuro neurological complexity. Well, the problem is that we see that someone can continue to be conscious even though their brain has been changed by an operation or something has been added to it, and yet they're the same consciousness. Secondly, that over time, uh, your brain, from the point of view of physics, looks mostly like a cloud of, of particles, and yet you remain the same person. Well, here's the difficulty. Um, there are many candidates um, for the brain that could generate consciousness at one time, right? So in other words, your whole brain or many, many subsets of it would all be sufficient, according to materialism, to generate consciousness. So then why aren't you many consciousnesses at one time? Likewise, over time, if your brain is this constantly changing cloud of atoms with bits of matter being added and removed all the time, why don't you keep changing from one consciousness to another? In other words, why do we even stay the same person over time at all? Um, and it would be a total fluke to say that all these different clouds of atoms would always produce the same consciousness. Whereas if you take the simple view, well, it's because there's something constant. You're, you have this one soul at and over time, and that explains why you are one consciousness at and over time. The, 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 the physicalism seems to implausibly predict that you should be many consciousnesses at one time and many over time. And this is just not what we uh, observe. You know, I, I, I looked up um, some information where, because one time I heard that the entire mass of your body changes every seven years or something like that. And I, looking deeper into it, that isn't the case. I guess there's cells that change quite a lot, and then there's cells that don't change a lot. And one of them, for example, is the, the neurons that you keep the same neurons. One that I was really dismayed to hear about was fat cells, that they, that they last forever. And uh, <laughs> they, they have kind of an immortality associated with it. But it did not address the what you alluded to, which was the idea that they 
are probably replaced maybe one atom or something, a certain interval of time. And the fact that you remain still the same person is, is frankly astonishing. Yeah, because if 100% of your neurons are sufficient to generate consciousness, and so are 99.9% and 99.8%, when you look at all of those subsets, why doesn't each one of them generate a different consciousness? And the same thing as, yeah, over time, lots of parts are being changed in various ways. Why don't they keep generating different consciousnesses instead of what we see is there's continuity? And we notice from our own experience, because when you're listening, for example, to a phrase uh, in a symphony that you're listening to, you have the sense, ah, yeah, here is that theme coming around again. Mm-hmm. That presupposes that you are the same person who heard that theme the first time. There, there are experiences that we have. Likewise, when you do a demonstration in mathematics and logic, you're reliant on the fact that you're arguing from premises that you previously understood, and you know where you are in the proof based on lines that you have already proved and know what you're moving on to, all of those kinds of thinking presuppose that you're the same person from beginning to the end of the proof. Otherwise, Uh you wouldn't really be the one drawing the conclusion. It'd be like one person was studying the problem, and another person, the conclusion occurred to them, but they didn't reason from the premises to the uh, conclusion. Same with our actions, right? I mean, what's the point of doing all that work uh, in pre-med or pre-law if it's somebody else who goes to uh, law school or, or med school? Of course, given the debts, you might want to do that, but right. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's not actually how we think, right? We, 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 are, we are planning our own future based on our current actions assuming all the while that it is going to be us that does these things. If we can't account for that kind of identity over time properly, we actually undercut the rationality of of human action. Why is the scientist bothering to do these experiments to, uh, you know, confirm or refute his theory if it's not going to be him or her who who ends up, um, you know, discovering the results? Let me end our our discussion together by asking you an outlier question. Uh, Elon Musk is developing something called Neuralink. It's a chip which goes into the brain, and it seems to me that its its immediate application is going to be to those that are handicapped. It is going to be able to allow them to communicate directly to objects that they can't control normally because of their because of their handicap. Do you see something like Neuralink or augmentation of the human brain ever changing our consciousness and what we consider to be conscious? Well, it's going to depend on what we mean by consciousness because it it could change our access consciousness. What it can do is it can repair deficits in the flow of information so that now a person is able to say or do something because there was a, a problem in sending that information to uh, their their organs and they, they were not able to do it right and and likewise with hearing it's it's there are, there are going to be um, chips that will actually um, repair some of the neurological damage and that may restore hearing to people but it's not that 
um, the basic ability to be aware of something has been changed. That phenomenal consciousness, either you have it or you don't. It's just that what you're able to access and do with that consciousness will be improved by improving the flow of information to and from your your consciousness. But it won't change the consciousness per se. Yeah, not what it is in itself, just its contents. In other words, you'll be able to be conscious of some new things. I mean, this is not surprising, really, when you think about it. If you put on you know, infrared goggles, you can see things in the dark that you couldn't see before. That didn't give you a you know, some consciousness that you didn't have in the sense that you were, you went from not being aware to being aware. It's rather that now you're aware of different things. So you've got access to information which you didn't have uh, before. You know, that's interesting. I, when, when I do mathematics, for example, I can only add or multiply two numbers at a time. That's the reason if I multiply like 619 by 413, I have to write it down because that paper is my short-term memory on what I'm doing. I can only I can only do one multiplication and then a carry at a time. And it doesn't seem to me that Neuralink is going to improve that. I think that people think that we are going to be super people with super abilities to think and create, but I, I cannot comprehend that improving what I do, which is kind of one thing at a time, with, of course, a short memory. You mentioned about doing a proof. You have to have that short-term memory about where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish. But I don't see that as helping very much. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, the instruments will obviously speed up the time before we get to a result. But really what we're doing is we're delegating something to a machine, just like when we use a calculator or a, a computer it doesn't in and of itself make us any more conscious. So we will we will be aware of the answer more quickly, but we won't be aware of thinking to the answer more quickly because, in fact, this device is going to be doing that transformation for us. Yeah, that's interesting. I think probably with the Neuralink, I could say, what's 438 times 528 and just refer it to a search engine and they'll give me the answer without me going through all of these steps at a time. So I can see yeah. uh, acceleration in, in that sort of sense. Great. We have been talking to Dr. Angus Manoush about some some fascinating things on the unity of consciousness and the idea of too many thinkers, some philosophy that I think has some great applications in artificial intelligence. And we thank Dr. Manoush for the time that he spent with us. Dr. Manoush is a professor and chair of philosophy at Concordia University. And we're going to have a lot of information in the podcast notes about uh, links to his books and some of the other things that are going on in his world. And we will continue this next time on Mind Matters News. Until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.